Hello and welcome to the Irish Film London podcast. I'm Neve Brannigan and I'm joined with Jerry Maguire. How are you this week, Jerry? I am grand, Neve. Thank you for asking. Good, good. You got you made it through the St. Bridget's Day Festival. How did that go? Yeah, that was really good. It was really, really good fun, actually. Um, a weekend of Irish female film um, at both the Riverside and the Rio. So it's nice to do an event like that where we get to be in both, like, East London and West London across one weekend. You get to see such a different kind of group of people. But yeah, it was really good. Thank you. And I guess the listeners will get a bit of a glimpse into what it was like with today's episode, right? Indeed, yeah. So our interview today is going to be a special recording that we made at our at one of our Bridget's Day screenings. So one of our screenings was of Margot Harkin's very special film, Hushy Bye Baby, which we screened at the Rio last Sunday. And we recorded the Q&A, which Margot took part in with Dr. Emmy McFadden of Sheffield Hallam University. So it's a really lovely interview, which covers a lot of ground and we think you'll really enjoy it. And I'm actually looking forward to having a new interviewing voice in the mix. Mm. What are you what are you trying to say, Jerry? Just to shake things up a little <laughs> bit, you know. You know. Keep, keep you on your toes. Okay, okay, <laughs> I get the on my I toes. <laughs> Maybe I'll just come on and next week I'll just do like a different accent. I could just do the whole interview in a different accent, maybe. That'd be show off my uh, my acting skills. That'd be. So I'm available. I am so available for anyone who needs me for a job. <laughs> okay, so diving into Irish film news, uh, Screen Ireland did their kind of slate launch, their program launch for 2023. Um, and some really, really cool and exciting things in there. Uh, one that we've kind of briefly already talked about was John Carney's Flora and Son. Mm-hmm. Um, there's loads of uh, TV shows, animations, um, documentaries. I think I have a list here. Oh, yeah. So the 2023 production slate contains 44 projects crossing a multitude of genres and target audiences. So it includes nine feature films, three animation series, eight TV dramas, 13 documentaries and seven short films. So the industry is, it's alive and well. It's alive and well and kicking. That's some list. And that's just the stuff that's coming out through Screen Ireland, which obviously is like the main sort of very Mm. important national funder. But like, that's a big slate, you know? Yeah, exactly. I know that... um, Actress Charlene McKenna, who stars in the new um, crime thriller TV series Clean Sweep, um, is also going to be a voice in the new animated feature film A Greyhound of a Girl, uh, which is based on the short story story from Roddy Doyle, um, ah. which will premiere in Berlin Film Festival next month. And also Brendan Gleeson is a voice in that um, animation as well, which I think Brilliant. that's going to be gorgeous. Yeah, that sounds good. Did you hear about uh, a project called Apocalypse Clown? It's got it's by a director called George Kane. I think it's on oh, that. Yes, I feel yeah. I feel like this that's going to be our our comedy, um, you know, film next year to well this year to kind of yeah bring us out of any kind of dark documentaries or anything like that that always seem yeah. to creep up. So yeah, there's some really good titles there. Uh, I hope no one minds me saying this, but there are kind of these titles don't really rule off the tongue very well or maybe they do maybe they're just like very notable like a greyhound of a girl and Mm -hmm. apocalypse clown it's not like 
I don't know. It's definitely not the the BBC slit, is it? It's not like. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what you were gonna say. I I thought you were talking about I'm pronouncing things funny. I was like, what? No. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, they're very kind of. They feel all very authentic. I have to say, there's no yeah, kind totally. of. Um, yeah, we'll just call it that. You know, I feel like everything's <laughs> definitely been really thought about, or maybe not thought about enough. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Jeez, I hope no one thinks I was talking about. <laughs> I'm sure they're all brilliant, but I'm just I'm only focusing on the names. What no, things? I know, agreed. Well, actually, also the documentary highlights in the slate include Gara Rourke's um, Ukraine set, um, Santatorium, um, and also there's upcoming animated TV series, including new episodes of Atom Town and STEM, which is uh, an educational children's series oh, yeah. based on periodic tables. So there are, there's loads of mad names going on in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the I, one really cool thing I think to note is the production activity in 2022, there was a recorded spend of 361 million driven by both Irish and international productions. So overall, that's an increase of 4 million from 2019, the year preceding the COVID-19 pandemic. So, I mean, yeah, hopefully that's going to be, what do you think? Do you think that's going to be sustainable? Do you you think Um, that that's only just because of the aftermath of COVID or? Yeah, like I do wonder about that actually. Mm. How much is it? 361 million and some thousands. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I do. I like this is a thing that I worry about a little bit because there's there's so much production activity, or there has been so much production activity in the last few years, and like yeah. we see it as a festival organisation that screens the completed films. There's so many of them to choose from, and our festival events are jam packed full of new films all the time right now. But yeah, I do kind of worry like if the if we're, we've just got a bottleneck of them and they'll disappear again or the, you know, the activity will wind down afterwards. But, you know, seeing yeah. this announcement, if there's been that much spend in 2022 and that number of projects, then that gives me confidence to know that we'll still have a, well, hopefully we'll have a good crop next year and the year after because that's sort of the timeline for them. I guess this is absolutely eye on, isn't it? Like to see what... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, but I also think, I, like, as you said, it's super encouraging, but also, I mean, and then I guess Cherry on top of that is, I mm. think, like a record of Irish nominations across the board of award shows. I mean, that's going to be yeah. active to, to huge, like loads of international stuff, yeah. let alone, you know, more money maybe being um, put into our, our own here, you know? Yeah. So, so maybe that's, that's the way that it maintains its sustainability is that, like, mm. success of some films or TV shows on the slate make it successful enough that it can maintain that in the following year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, Another really cool thing that popped up was the film Tarek, um, which means pull in Irish. Um, It sees a woman played by Kelly Goff. Um, It was premiered in the Galway film Fla. Uh, That's going to be distributed in the UK and Ireland by Parkland Entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really cool because that was also part of the TG Cahar, um, uh Cine 4 scheme, uh, which also obviously produced um, on Colleen Kewen. So, yeah. Um, yeah, really, really looking forward to that. That's always really nice when it gets UK and Ireland distribution. 
yeah that's that's really good really really good news Mm -hmm. another irish language film that's gonna reach uk audiences i really hope the parkland has every success with that a i know those guys and they're 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 a good good bunch but Mm -hmm. b i've also seen Tarek, and it's a really great film and i really hope that it reaches audiences so i need to get learning my irish sherry i need to start brushing up I, I, I want to respond to you as Gail ago. I know, <laughs> to show off. But you can't <laughs> either. No, I can't. Well, I don't have the confidence in it. You know, I'm up to nearly 200 days on Duolingo. Are you Duolingo? I, yeah. I, I used to do Duolingo, but it was the, just the constant nagging of Duolingo. Right, I was okay. like, I'm going to get to it when I get to it, you know. <laughs> uh, and it was really, I was kind of, I always found it very passive aggressive. It's like, miss, missing you. I'm like, okay. Um, but okay well right your next task then is to come on and talk to me in Irish and I mean I guess in a way as well I won't really understand what you're saying so you could say anything but yeah maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe could do a little intro in Irish sometime okay I'll work on that for next time and also in other news we briefly touched on it in our last episode is the Dublin Film Festival and their programme has been launched and some amazing films in there Irish and international shorts, yeah. documentaries, the whole shebang. Um, I know I'm booked in to see God's Creatures, which is very exciting, and also in for a few shorts. Um, mm. Is there anything that's tickled your fancy on that programme? Well, let's see. God's, is God's Creatures the opening night? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm really interested to see My Sailor, My Love, which is uh, a Scandi director, mm. I think, um, whose name completely escapes me. But I would go to that to see Bridge Brennan in a sort of lead romantic role that sounds, that sounds really fun I've seen the trailer of that around for a while um, there's also Lola by Andrew Legg which I caught at Edinburgh Film Festival earlier this year and would recommend to people and what else we've got a debut feature by Claire Dix called Sunlight which features Barry Ward and a host of really interesting characters in there. Um, that's that's good fun. That's a, a pleasant watch. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. quite like it's not very heavy, although the um, you know it, it does pull on the heartstrings a little bit, but it it, it, it approaches it in a really light way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm always very intrigued to see what the uh, surprise film will be every year. Oh, God, I, love yeah. they, I love that they do that. That's so cool. Yeah. And then in regards to Irish film London news, um, our next big thing, we've done St. Bridget's Day. So our next one is uh, St. Patrick's Day. Um, and the deadline for that one is going to be soon, the 20th of February, isn't it? Yes. So you can still submit your short films or feature films to us on Film Freeway up until the closing date of the 20th of February so that's filmfreeway.com forward slash St. Patrick's Film Festival or just search for St. Patrick's Film Festival and Film Freeway in case I somehow got that URL wrong uh, but yeah we do want to see your show. it's all about confidence Jerry it's all about confidence you like so much we do want to see um, okay amazing pictures. yeah that and that's already um sounding like it's going to be such a brilliant lineup and such a great festival and it's always great crack every year and everything in Trafalgar Square please god it doesn't rain again and it doesn't wash us out like most years oh god yes. um, but even even still though to be honest everyone just wraps up and is just kind of gets on with it and still has the best day so um, yeah, that's going to be a really it. great um, festival Definitely. for sure across the, the weekend 
Yeah, and you can still watch the short films online uh, from our St. Bridges Day program on Irish Film From Home. So all you need to do is go to irishfilmlondon.com forward slash irishfilmfromhome and watch a selection of six short films by female filmmakers from Ireland. It's sort of a best of 2022 and that's available on our Irish Film From Home until the end of February. So check that out as well. Grab a ticket and support a not-for-profit organisation. And one thing that you did with that programme, um, which is on YouTube, right, which I think is really cool for maybe people to watch after they watch the shorts, is we did an interview with Madeline all about um, our films. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, you know, if you buy a ticket to watch it on Irish Film From Home, you get access to that on there as well. But mm. yeah, that's going up. That's going to go up on YouTube after the fact as well. So very, very cool. at, after the end of February, once the um, Irish Film From Home program is complete i am going to stick that up on youtube for people because i think it's a really really good chat it's like it's catchy it was quite challenging because there was so many of you there <laughs> yeah i really i just kind of kept sitting back and just, i was just really in like enjoying hearing everyone else chatting about their film and then every yeah. now and then i was like oh yeah i should probably you know <laughs> take part here yeah <laughs> but it was it was really lovely it was a really really nice chat but speaking of uh, supporting non-for-profit did you know, guys, it's super simple, super, super simple. Did you know that you can support IFL by simply just sharing this podcast? So share it with your friends, share it on your Instagram stories, share it on Facebook, anything like that. When someone says, what are you listening to? What podcast are you listening to at the moment? Even you just telling them that you're listening to us and hopefully that you enjoy it um, might encourage us to grow our audiences, which we are always looking to do. And you can use your regular old social media account to do that. And then, I mean, if you want to go next step further, you can always become a festival friend as well. I'm going for it. Um, you can do that on our website. And that also comes with loads of perks, especially around festival season in regards to the St. Patrick's Day Festival or then in November. And loads of little perks as well throughout those festivals as well. So definitely have a look at that and support little old Jerry and I and uh, the Irish Film London crew. We would definitely, definitely appreciate it. Do it, do it, do it. Um, but thank you so much. Thanks for chatting, and uh, I look forward to listening to this new interviewer voice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've got much to worry about. Okay. Um, and I will talk to you very, very soon. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Dave. Bye. If you're part of the regular Irish Film London audience or want to get more from your experience, consider joining our growing family of members for a range of exciting benefits. Irish Film London is a non-for-profit organisation. Our mission is to promote the best new Irish film to audiences all over the UK and with the help of this podcast, the world. If you become a festival friend or a festival champion, you get perks like discounted tickets for films and events, free access to Irish Film From Home films and invites to networking events and so much more. So check it out now. Um, just out of um, interest, how many people have seen this film before? Two people. Three. All right. Four. <laughs> Thank you. So a lot of people, uh, very first time, which is really brilliant. Um, my name's Emmy. Thank you for joining us. Um, just to say, I've watched this film many times and I've always needed a moment after uh, that film. So I think I'll start talking to Margot first, ask her a few questions, but really is about opening up this uh, conversation uh, to you, the audience. So if you have questions or 
I'm a lover of comments or observations or just thoughts, anything uh, that you want to say, we really, really welcome. So, Margo, thank you for joining us. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, so, you studied fine art at university, uh, you taught art uh, at school, and then you taught uh, art at a community workshop for unemployed young people. You then trained as a stage designer at the Field Day Theatre Company. At what stage did you decide that film was the medium of expression for you? Yeah, first of all, I, I did go to university. I went to the Art College of Belfast. Um, that time it was, wasn't, I didn't even get a degree, it was called a DFAD, but the next on take of students got the degree based on the quality of our work, so it doesn't matter to me any of this stuff, you know. And also, I feel I didn't treat me as a designer. It was, I went to a postgraduate course in London with the Percy Harris Theatre Design course, which was a brilliant, brilliant course. And spent a year there and learned so much. I just want to go first for a start. Who was even born in 1984 here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not so bad, right? <laughs> yeah, somebody probably very young, like maybe five or so. <laughs> Um, yeah, what what brought me to film? Um, I think it was to do with, um, I was working with Field Day and loved working with the actors, absolutely loved that. But I had the lowliest job and then I was doing theatre design with them after having done that course. It was every kind of interest me to do that course. And um, the fact that Channel 4 set up in 1982 was really the big factor that led me to become a filmmaker because it suddenly opened the door to all sorts of people who otherwise didn't have a chance to get into filmmaking unless you went to uh, the Royal College or something like that. You know, I don't think the National Film School existed at that time. But Pat Murphy, who I think you had here recently, was it recently or last year? Uh, she wasn't here. She was. We, we watched many. Um, yeah, well, she, she went to... Um, uh, the Royal College, I think, and I'd heard about her having done this, but anyway, I, I, I didn't think of being a filmmaker for the longest time, I really didn't. Um, it was the fact that Channel 4 set up, and three three women who lived in Derry, but didn't really know each other. Um, we were kind of, people put us in touch with each other, and we said, let's go for this, let's try and make, uh, do a workshop, put in a bid to Channel 4 for a workshop, because they were, at that time they were sort of seeding new talent. Uh, through this workshop movement, and um, basically, most people, some people, some of the workshops had a lot of experience. We didn't have any, but we had a strong point of view. We wanted to make films that increased the representation of women, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. We definitely had that as kind of our biggest prerequisite. But we also had a whole thing about the fact that lots of media came to Northern Ireland and we didn't recognise ourselves in that view that generally was presented to us because of, you know, they're, they're, it was filtered through the whole lens of the troubles. And we didn't particularly agree with a lot of it. And, you know, everybody was affected by the troubles, especially in Derry, you know, when we lived on the bog side, most of us. So, um, it was kind of, a, a, I mean, I didn't set out ever to be a filmmaker. It was that kind of serendipity that happened. That, led us to, to um, set up the workshop and struggle, struggle, struggle so hard to finally get funding to make that film in Mother Ireland before us. Um, it's good that we have an idea of an age <laughs> uh, of the audience. Uh, so, so just to kind of get the context and the sense of the climate at the time that this film 
uh, was reflecting on and also uh, uh, when it was made. So as we see, it takes place in 1984, a year after 1983, uh, when the right to life for the unborn was written into the constitution uh, as a result of the referendum, the first referendum in Ireland. In 1986, uh, the pro-life movement secured a legal ban on access to information in women's clinics. In 1987, the Irish media were warned that they were liable for prosecution uh, if information on abortion was discussed on television or on live broadcasts. Given that climate and your film, It's Made in 1990, how did you pitch this uh, film to the film funders and what barriers, if any, did you face when you were trying to get this film made? And uh, it was released in 1990, I actually wrote it in 1988, and it was me in 1989. Um, I, I remember so much writing that script, and Stephanie wrote some scenes as well, but I mostly wrote it myself, and I just had this little three-year-old girl who kept trying to stop me writing it. <laughs> and my husband had to keep taking her away. It was, actually, it wasn't a very good mother at that time. But um, yeah, I mean, we set our workshop we can probably was her reaction to what was going on in Ireland at the time, because 1983 was such a fraught period, period in Ireland. Ireland, some of you will remember it. Um, I always compared it to, you know, what it must have been like during the Civil War in Ireland, where families were divided over, you know, what position they should take on the, the, the politics of the time. Well, it was the same with this. I mean, people were fighting within families, you know, sometimes you don't bring it up or you were warned not to bring up the, the issue of abortion. And it was a very, very militantly fought, that whole campaign by the, the Right to Life people by Spock to um, have the, the rights of the unborn child be superior to a woman. Um, enshrined in the Constitution in 1983. It was a horrific time for people who supported, um, you know, rights for women. And um, there was a time when I felt like it was never, ever, ever going to change. I mean, the, the end of the repeal came very, very quickly. But way back then, it just seemed so desperate. And I remember going to meetings in Dublin and people being so frightened to go to the meetings because, or at least I was, because um, the people who were speaking said, be aware that there are probably Spock members in the audience, we'll all look around to see who it was, you know. And it reminded me like uh, of, of when I first went to art college in Belfast, who Alberta uh, Devil, like the civil rights movement was a nascent movement at that time. And um, you know, you go to meetings where Alberta Devil will walk, welcome the special branch men at the back of the hall, you know. It was the same kind of feeling, you know, um, but very frightening and, and um, I forgot the question, was it? <laughs> Did you face any kind of barriers? Oh, barriers, right. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, Channel 4 was incredibly um, liberal in any case. That's got such a dirty word now, but they were very forward-thinking, very progressive is probably a better word. And um, I think they had more problems with our Republican politics uh, because, you know, we all believed in, in the United Ireland. That was kind of another layer of our politics. But they absolutely did support a progressive uh, attitude to what was happening to women in Ireland. So they welcomed this sort of film that was right up their street. Uh, RT didn't actually put any money into it. Uh, the fact that they wouldn't give us any attention for the longest time, but Bob Collins, who was the uh, 
what was he head of program, so for me he was head of the commissioning order anyway. He, he also was a very progressive man, but he didn't have any money, but we tortured him basically. I mean, he just wouldn't reply to emails or phone calls. So we went down one day, very early in the morning, rose out of the road, stupid o'clock in the morning, and drove down to Dublin and sat in the foyer of our team and said we weren't going to wait till he met us. And he did, he just made me think about it, the cheek, I don't know, I don't know that I'll do that now. And, um, he um, just a whole camera of us came into the room, actually the whole workshop, and he said then that he would support us, and but only by way of like the cameraman came from him and the gear came from him. It was by way of other benefits, no cash because they just didn't have the cash. And the arts council put the princely sum of five thousand pounds and got a credit for that. Um, so. <laughs> Those were the two. Oh no, the British Screen. Uh, it was um, Simon Ralph. Was that Simon Ralph? I think was his name. He was terrific as well. He he gave us forty thousand um, pounds. But this whole film was made for the tiniest budget. I mean, it was scraped the time out in London as the acme of low budget filmmaking because we made it in three hundred and sixty pounds. I mean, it was ridiculous. Well, because we didn't have to get paid. I mean, you had to pay the. Thank you. <coughs> that you brought in properly, excuse me. Workshop members during the whole development of it, like we barely earned anything. We were all on these unemployment schemes and a little bit of money from Channel 4. And then during the actual shoot, I did all the budgets, believe it or not, not to. I budgeted that everybody could get a proper workshop salary during the actual production. I was delighted about that, then after that we went back to earning a pittance, I think we earned 52 pounds a week. You know, so it was this kind of commitment made us make it and make all of our work rather than we were trying to earn a living we just weren't it was about speaking out in a way that you just had to do it wasn't something that you couldn't avoid it like it was just something that compelled you to do it but no the broadcasters never the financiers never gave us any bother but we had to fight and claw like everybody does to get money to make the film um, if it wasn't for channel four would have been made yeah yeah um I mean, I, I wonder if, you know, like RT, when I saw that on the credits, I'm like, did they give money to this? You know, I wonder if, like, were they frightened, you know? But you um, see, the thing is, it's not a political film. What, what would you object to? What would you I wouldn't object to anything, but I'm wondering if I'm RTE, and I'm wondering if, if there is that kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, threat that if you speak or, you know, openly, you know, I no, I think there were a lot of forces in RT that, that w would have preferred um, a different climate in Ireland than the one we have. I mean, they would have been called the Dublin Four set that would have been mocked a lot, but there were generally people who, you know, didn't support the um, the amend amendment uh, to enshrine the right of, of life of the child, I think. I think we didn't come across any obstacles anyway. It certainly didn't. No, it wasn't that. I mean, they weren't waiting for us with their nice dagger straw or anything like that. No, they were helpful, you know, as, as far as they could be. All calls was incredibly helpful, yeah. Um, could we uh, talk about uh, Goretti and kind of building uh, that character? Uh, you co-wrote the script with Stephanie English. Um, what were you drawing on when you were developing the, category, uh, sorry, the, char the character of Goretti? Well, I, mean, I just wanted to have uh, people recognise this young girl because I knew that um, 
every family knew Greta, like every bloody family knew somebody like that. You didn't have to scratch very hard to find people who had, who were, you know, in, in, in secret helping women to go to England for abortions. And they were going at that stage around the rate of 5,000 a year that we know of. These were people who identified themselves with Irish addresses. Then plenty more probably would have tried to hide that. Um, so I knew that, you know, generally there was a, a great group of people who were silenced really in terms of what they felt on these issues. And whenever I showed it as well, People queued up afterwards, I mean, it's just remarkable to me what happened. People queued up afterwards and sometimes they would endlessly tell you their own stories of having children have been expecting before they were married and married because they were pregnant. But we also did this research beforehand. I did these um, uh, workshops where um, I think I was trying to be like Mike Lee and get to people like that. But I did try to use some devices where we had um, drama workshops. We used all local people, quite a few of them ended up on the phone. They were local school girls and whatever. Friends of Dinky. Dinky was not an actor. I mean, she was a local girl who sort of shot out in the workshop. She was very funny. And, um, so, and we just did all the kind of things that you, you do in a drama workshop. And then I also did a lot of research where I went to Bishop Daly, who gave me a you know, he had this clinic on a Thursday morning and he says he never knew what was going to, he was a Catholic bishop, he never knew what was going to be presented to him. And he said he had many, many uh, mothers, uh, especially of fathers, come to him when their child got pregnant, full of shame, not knowing what to do. <clears throat> and he wasn't judgmental himself, you know, he just wasn't. He said that the parents went through a lot apart from, from, from the young women themselves, and quite often there were cases of genuine love, like, you know, got all sorts of stories. But then I went to Bishop Mahaffey, and um, he was the Church of Ireland bishop, and it was a much more liberal approach. I mean, they supported the right to choose, they supported abortion. And I mean, at that point I was an atheist, but I thought if I was going to join the church, I probably would have been that <laughs> But yeah, and we did do a lot of research. I think probably that I was, it was daunting for me the idea of making a film, but when you think about it, what a bloody nerve as well to do it. Like, you know, because we didn't know a thing, like, didn't know a thing. This was my first film, in case I haven't made that clear. Uh, but just had the intention, you know, and the ambition, so. <coughs> did I answer your question? Yes. <laughs> um, what about the audience? I'd love to. Do we have a microphone? We do. Uh, so we have a microphone down the back, and I'd love for the audience uh, to get involved. And somebody green right in the middle of the Thank you, Margo. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really grateful that we got to see this on a big screen. Um, Where's that accent from? <laughs> from Belfast. Oh. Um, and I, um, I'm just, um, you know, what a treat to watch this, um, and it's just wonderful and so complicated. There's so many layers, and I could ask a million questions. But I suppose what I always think about it, like being a woman from the north living here in London, um, where you know you talked a bit about the context of what was happening on the island of Ireland, but my question is about the very particular situation in the north. 
And by that I mean the contradiction of the British laying claim to the North but not extending rights to women. And um, I know when I arrived here 10 years ago, most feminists didn't have a clue about what was happening in the North. And I'm just wondering about the impact of the film here. And, um, you know, did, did it bring about any campaigning? I know that there were people who were doing work here, but really just not in, not in a significant way, not like we've seen in the past 10 years. Was um, here, do you mean? Oh, in England. Oh, in England. Um, well, in London, but yeah, I think just I know when I when I moved here, I was really shocked at how little people knew about what was happening in the north of Ireland in terms of reproductive rights. Well, the great irony is that um, the Republic of Ireland now has um, you know abortion rights. They got their abortion rights much earlier. We, like always, the north was supposed to be more progressive because it was part of Britain, but in fact, Northern Ireland is this anomaly and between the two islands and that it's only now after endless, I mean it was passed through Parliament several years ago now, pre-Covid, I know that because I remember us all having a night of celebration on San Dino's Bar and Dairy. Um, but you know, the actual practice of giving women abortion rights has not really translated down until literally around now because I think they're going to commission new legislation in April but the big transformation that has happened meanwhile as well is that 80% of early pregnancies are now aborted through pills, which is a big change like when we first of all started campaigning. And so in Northern Ireland, when the, leg when the legislation was passed, doctors, sympathetic doctors were already practicing it and helping women to have these pills up to 10 weeks, because after, like, the legislation says you can um, have those pills up to 12 weeks, but apparently it's much more painful and difficult to have them after 10 weeks. And so they have been doing that, but not every, that's just been down to sympathetic doctors waiting for the legislation to actually become concrete, um, or to be not to conquer, it's because it was already passed, but to be put into practice, you know, because you have to set up the clinics and all of that. Um, and those doctors, <clears throat> there might have been one in each of the five trusts, and if one of them was on maternity leave or sick or whatever reason, then that didn't happen. So it wasn't really properly being dealt with. But, but And if women still find themselves pregnant after 12 weeks, they're still, they're still traveling to England, even though the legislation said they had the right to the abortion in Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, why would people know what's going on in Northern Ireland? You know, I, I sometimes I feel that about... But, uh, no, I, I have to say that the solidarity between women in the North and women in the South has been amazing. Like, we all worked so hard together for, to bring about repeal. We were all involved in that. I mean, all of the women, you know, of, of a nature to be involved in that. We were absolutely, we didn't stand, stand aside. We all campaigned and felt it was our victory when it was finally changed because there was this period when I was so depressed and so many people were so depressed because I think there were three referenda altogether. And uh, 1992, um, different things happened. And then we had the X case. I mean, it would take you so long to tell these stories. Do any of you know what the X case is? Yeah, well maybe some of you don't, I'll just tell it briefly. The next case was this case of a, it was 1992, 
in February where uh, it was discovered, and if I get this wrong, you can correct me, but a young 14-year-old girl, um, her parents, she got pregnant, and she had been sexually abused by um, a family friend. And her family <coughs> took her to England to have an abortion because she couldn't have an abortion in Ireland. But while they were here, they wrote to the, or contacted the uh, Gardaí to ask if they could bring the remains of the fetus back so they could do DNA testing. And this was, the guards didn't know what to say to this, so they referred it up to the Attorney General, who then uh, uh, ordered the parents to come back so they couldn't have an abortion. And they came back, they were just good people like, they just didn't, you know, they didn't want to break the law in any way, so they came back. And then it went through a trial, um, I think it went to the High Court, if I'm getting this wrong, correct me. And um, that judge who, who judged gave absolute determined the law that the girl was suicidal at this stage, she was making clear threats of taking her own life because it was so appalling to her what was happening to her. And the judge ruled in favour of the unborn child that the greater sentence to it. I mean, it's just when you think about it, it's just so anger-making. And um, so then it went upwards then to, and he, he, he took his time, he wasted like so much time, both with the, the, the actual consideration, and he waited a week before he gave his answer, I remember that, it was just, Every day matters when you're in an area of pregnancy. And then it went upwards to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, for the first time, ruled in favour of the, the young girl, the mother, that her life mattered more, that she was, you know, she was starting to take her own life. And they did go to England, and, and, but I think she miscarried, I don't even think she had an abortion, she miscarried on the way. So that was another horrific case. I mean, Ireland was just completely convulsed by these things that happened. Um, and then we didn't mention it because it's the referred to in the film, the Anne Lovett case where a 15 year old girl gave, gave birth in a, um, a grotto in Granard and she and the baby died. It was the coldest time of year, it was January 30th. Uh, what year was that? 84. In 84. Why didn't I remember that? Because we set up our workshop in 84 and we had the abortion referendum the year before. And in 1983 as well, people were seeing statues of the Virgin Mary moving all over Ireland. That's why, you know, I put that line on it with Grady saying, would you fucking move? Yeah. Because, um, and funny enough, they, they didn't, it didn't happen in the north, it was a phenomenon in the south. And then you had the case of Joanne Hayes, which was 84 as well, where she um, was put through a tribunal, which effectively became a trial of her, because a baby had been found in a fertilizer bag washed, washed up at the beach in County Kerry. And the guardian went to all the hospitals and said, have you had any evidence of somebody who's been in, who may have had a baby, but no evidence of the baby. And they said, yeah, Joanne Hayes had been in. And Joanne Hayes was this young woman who worked in the local swimming pool. I mean, these stories are amazing stories in themselves. And I would have liked to make films about them, but she did, to this day, she doesn't want anybody to make that story. But she, she fell in love with a local <coughs> married um, swimming instructor called Jeremiah Locke. I always remember it's such a strange name for Ireland. Yeah, Jeremiah Locke. And uh, so um, she, she'd had a child already. I'm not sure if it was by him or not. And the guards, when they went looking for the possible person who killed this baby that was washed up on the beach, um, 
they forced a confession from not only her, but her entire family. It was all done under coercion, and they told her to take away her child she already had. So it became a huge cause celebrity as well for the women's movement in Ireland. It kind of coalesced that movement. So watch that case on that lovely case. And that is one of the good things I take out of it, is the incredible solidarity that grew among men and women. Uh, particularly grew a women's movement in Ireland account of those cases. And all this while women were going to England for abortions and women were helping them. There's a whole network of people here, like an incredible network <coughs> in London, both of Irish women and just women who were in solidarity with what was going on. So I always like to thank those people. You know, you may not be here, any of you, but I do thank those people so much, you know, who helped Irish women. I haven't went on too much there, but all those cases were just so profound, has a big impact on us all. <coughs> and there is that wonderful shot where Granny is standing, you know, in the foreground and in the background. You have you are now entering Free Dairy, and it's like free for who? Free for women? Yeah, that, that was shot deliberately at that Free Dairy corner, and I had put lots of people with trans and babies in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Uh, more uh, questions or comments from the audience? I probably didn't answer your question at all. <laughs> Terrible for Hi, um, I, I just want to say I really love how cheerful it is, at least more at the start with all the discos and just there's so oh, yeah. much fun in it. Obviously, that kind of you see that leaving gradually uh, as the pregnancy goes on. But I was just, my question was just you said it was um, not polemic and that it's just, uh, just a film. Um, and that Channel 4 was fine kind of representing this sort of um, pro-choice politics, but we're a bit more like, keep it down with republicanism. Do you think that had anything to do with sort of, I guess, just looking at being like, isn't that archaic, very Catholic, to um, that in this country there's not uh, like access to abortions, but then not wanting to actually to, uh, take into account like Brit British impact in Ireland and how that affected. Well, they did to an extent, but they were given hugely massive harassment by Thatcher's government when we set up. I mean, it's surprisingly still that the workshop movement happened during her period of reign. Um, so, you know, they, they were being attacked and, and literally members of their staff were being attacked in the press or partners of people who were involved in left-wing politics. <clears throat> so I think it was that, you know, that they were... Yeah. And also because the whole Troubles period was so heavily propagandized that, you know, it was very hard to mediate it because the right-wing press here is so horrendous, I mean, it really is, um, that, you know, we see it now with the legacy cases, what's happening, you know, with the man who shot Aidan McInespy um, has kind of got off with a manslaughter sentence that will not, never be um, enacted, you know. And so, and, and the press just tells you what to think about that, and people think that's the answer. They don't know any of the background. And so I think, to be fair to Channel 4, they weren't desperately, <laughs> they weren't, 
I don't know if I could ever say they censored us. I had a strange kind of thing happen with Walt Stoneman, who was the commissioning editor of this film and remains a friend to this day. He actually now lives in the west of Ireland himself. But um, <clears throat> I didn't like the soldier scene um, after it had been written. Stephen and I both wrote that together. And it was funny, like, and it was meant to be funny, but when I looked at it, I thought, oh my God, this is far too sympathetic to a British yeah. soldier. Local people are not going to like it, but they hate it, and they hate it, and so much. Like, uh, it was called obscenity, in fact, in letters to the paper. <laughs> but, uh, but it was kind of based on a, a, a story that we'd heard that uh, were one of people who was a, a you know, friend of our community of filmmakers lived in the High Flats, which is the Rosal Flats, which is where Bloody Sunday happened in the Bogside of Derry. And they were raided all the time, like, but they were raided this one occasion and some of the officers of the police, not the army, the police, started speaking in Irish. And uh, they were so full of us the next day. Fuck's sake, come on, I'm speaking on Irish. And, um, and also on it, there were cases, lovely cases that would be um, revealed in the paper where, you know, the officer classes were being taught Irish, both army and soldiers are uh, placed. So that was kind of what it was based on, you know, I don't think, I think that ever yeah. really actually happened. But um, but what I was going to tell you was, Rod, I wanted to take it out because I was uncertain and I talked to Rod about it and Rod kind of threatened me, you know, actually nearly threatened me because he liked it, the fact that, you know, it kind of cast a soldier in a sympathetic, clever light. And I, oh, I was so cross. I really did nearly, you know, I thought I'd really take this out. And then no, I didn't, you know. So those are the kind of debates you have with, with them about things like that. But you did say that, like, there are people in RT that did feel the same way, but couldn't match it. So. They were bloody worse, let me tell you. So, well, yeah. I know. RT was terrible about politics of the North and politics of republicanism in a way that Channel 4 wasn't. RT absolutely was. Um, they completely fully fell behind in this section. What the hell is it called? There's so many sections, but the one that... Does anyone remember the censorship legislation section? Section 32 or something? Yes. They absolutely weighed up behind that big time and couldn't wait to practice it like... Um, and other people in the North did as well. But no, Channel 4 were, were always a progressive force for us, you know. Like, if they didn't exist, none of this work would have happened. And like I, I, I made the argument to them, like, what, what do they want people to do? Like, if they're going to stop people expressing themselves, of course they're going to turn to paramilitarism. You know, of course they're going to move in that particular direction. And uh, oh, I could tell you more stories about that, but I doubt if we've time now. You know, really, I could tell you so many stories. And they listened. You could have those discussions with them. You could have rational discussions, and they would listen. You know. So I have a lot of time for Channel 4 for that period, you know, really a lot. Like the reference to Mother Ireland in the film as well, was that it playing? Oh yes, we did that. That was pure delight doing that because it was banned. And uh, so we, but we had the family viewing, you know, we saw the end credits as if they just watched it on TV. So it was pure badness in our course. Getting in there, just uh, grabbing the eye of Irish Film London. Do we have time for one more audience question? Yeah, we do. Uh, so another uh, question from the audience. Yes, thank you. 
thank you. Uh, first of all, it's great that the film's been shown. I've been wanting to see it for years. Uh, never had the opportunity, so I'm just delighted. And it's great. Disappointed. No, <laughs> delighted. It's a great film. Um, I'm glad you made it, and I'm glad you're here today. Um, how did Sinead O'Connor come to be involved? Oh yeah, that was a funny story, all right. Um, we had, uh, one of our workshop members, Jim Curran, was mad about music. He was in a band called Fear of Gauze, and he used to practice down outside, you know, in the basement of, of our workshop, really. And um, he suggested Sinead O'Connor, I never heard of her at that time. I'd never heard of her. Um, that was probably about 1987. And then, so I started to watch things with her. I mean, at that stage too, I think she was almost better known in America. Um, and so I thought she was amazing. So no, you couldn't help but be compelled by her, you know. And so we got a contact from her manager, who was Bob Noah Kelly at that time. And she was going over to do, I think she was going to perform at the Emmys in LA. Is that what the Emmys are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and she went on stage and what was the song? Which one? Mandinka, possibly. Yeah, Mandinka. Yes, she did. And she was incredible. She was wearing this little baby girl, which was her son Jake's baby girl. Um, she was 18 years old. Anyway, we got a contact for Faulkner and asked if she did to do the music. It was the music we went to them. And um, so she said, I'll get in touch when I come back. And Myself and Tommy Collins, the producer, who died last year, sadly. Um, we met her in a little greasy spoon cafe um, just off Kensington High Street. I can't remember the name of the street. And I got a shock when I saw her first because she's tiny. I mean, really tiny. And she was starving and had this big greasy fry. <laughs> I remember I was so shocked about that too. I thought she'd be all into health food. She wasn't at that stage. And, uh, anyway, we asked would she do the music and Faulkner did most of the talking and then she suddenly piped up and said, can I be in it? And that was a bit of a shock because I couldn't, I couldn't think, you know. And I said, well, I don't really see a part for wee bald head of dairy girl. <laughs> <laughs> So that was okay, she was going to do the music, and we went away, and um, <sighs> what happened then was, um, do you know Brona Gallagher, any of you? Yeah, Bro Brona's become quite the star herself too. She's both a singer and an actor, and Brona was my babysitter. <laughs> I had the best babysitter. <laughs> I really did. I had to, uh, Clint Bryce was one of my babysitters, me and Amy McCann, we shared babysitters. And, uh, <clears throat> so, Rona was still at school and she was, I wrote the part of Sinead, the character was actually called Sinead, I wrote it for her. And then literally two weeks before we were start, before we were due to start production, she calls me up and says, Margot, can you change your schedule because I've got to do my recess. Uh, she didn't do very well in her exams and she had to do her recess and the dates clashed. She didn't know, didn't understand the work that got done to put the schedule together. I mean, if anybody here knows anybody, the problem's a nightmare. And, uh, so I had to say, she, uh, I brought her, that's not going to happen because, you know, we can't, you've no idea the knock-on that that has. So you have to make a decision, and I don't want to influence you. I, I, I wouldn't want to affect your life chances, you know, your career chances by telling you not to do it. So I'm not going to make a decision, you make it, talk to your parents, 
Her parents did the same. They said, you do whatever you want. So she decided to do a recess, and then we were left trying to catch somebody to replace her. And we'd done an exhaustive amount of casting already, and it was hard enough now, and we started again, and hell, we couldn't get anybody. And then Tommy, the producer, said, well, what about Sinead? You know, what about, and the part was a bigger part. So we called her up and she was delighted, but I completely shrunk the part down and um, it was a much bigger stinking part. And she was very shy. I mean, she wasn't, she's a brilliant performer, but performing, speaking words was not, didn't come easy to her at all. And, um, and also she had a thing about not being able to dance. Every time I watch her now and then, I think I see her dance and always remember her, how she talked about that, how it was so stressed of her trying to dance. Because she was trained in ballet and it was all like being stiff and she couldn't really let herself go. But she was a complete delight to work with, like people often want to know that. Um, but I remember on the last day, it, it, she didn't get on. The girl who played the lead part was very jealous of her coming in and told her that we'd cast her just to get popularity for the film, yeah, and draw attention to the film, but it was so the opposite of what was the case, it was kind of desperation, the way we did And uh, she really pissed her off, and on the last day, she shaved her head again, that was a week before everything, she shaved her head again and put on this amazing leather jacket she had with the Sacred Heart on the back of it, and tore strips off that made that lead actor. And, she just went around everybody and said, Cheerio, and she just kind of went back into her own character, and then she kind of suppressed her character a lot during the, the, the film, you know. But we found her a complete pleasure to work with. I mean, she went through a lot since that, you know. So. Yeah, it wasn't long after that that she was on Saturday Night Live, ripping up a picture of the Pope. Um, final question from the audience, and then we'll bring it to the close. Down the front, just wait for the microphone so we can all hear. Thank you. Down the very front, in the middle there. Hi, um, I'm super intrigued by the development of the film through workshops. Um, I was wondering whether you could talk a bit more about what form they took and how they uh, informed the film itself. Um, well, apart from doing the workshops, we also agreed as members of the workshop to go out and do interviews with people who'd been through the experience of being pregnant outside of marriage. And we agreed that we would not share the details of who, who those people were. I mean, to this day, I don't know who some of the people were. I've never shared <coughs> the names of some of the people that I talked to. And that was the grounds of which we did it with people we talked to. But they told all sorts of stories about, you know, how um, um, it was their parents that went ballistic whenever they discovered they were pregnant. You know, quite often they were in loving relationships. Um, this is so long ago now, and you're challenging me here to think about this. But I mean, those were all written down, and the names changed. <clears throat> and I think they just informed me on how I wrote the script, you know, how I was developing this girl, who she was. And she was just this ordinary little dairy girl that found herself in a situation like so many women have before and since. And the isolation that they felt, you know, and the lack of support from people, and the fact that you couldn't talk to people. I meant to tell a sweet story about the girl playing Dinky, Kathy Casey. Um, I actually went out whenever the scene was on, where we're sitting on the stairs, and she says, Maybe you've got cancer, maybe she better, you have cancer than it would be to be pregnant at that time. Like, 
But remember, we started that first, and Kathy Casey, the girl, the school, her, she went to, they were all still at school, and she turned up with these two feet on her pinter and pal. I said, what's that? And she said, the school was giving it out to all of them. It was a pro, a pro life, <clears throat> little badge. So they were teaching it in schools, you know, that, um, you know, this was the position they should take on that issue. They were not exploring any other options. You should learn all these kind of things just through working with people. And I made her take it off. Of course, I was so horrified that she'd wear a badge like that. It probably might have been real if kept it on, more real if kept it on. But, um, so, yeah, you're just listening to people. You're picking up dialogue, listening to the way they talk, listening to the jokes. We got a lot of jokes out of those workshops. Um, and that was part of what we are trying to do as well, trying to make it accessible to young people that they'd watch it, you know. And um, and end up discussing it. And there were lots of rumors walking around about the phone when the first one died. Like I had this um, school teacher ring us up to ask if um, the film was based on a particular girl in their school because that rumor went around that it was. And of course it wasn't. It was like a fictitious uniform that we made up. Um, we did use a girl, a school girl who was pregnant and sat and talked to her a long time about what we were doing and how. You know how she would be portrayed in the film and what it was for. You know, and she was completely happy to do it. Like for example, that scene where Greta is sitting down, <coughs> and when she pulls up her shirt, she's actually pregnant. I mean, that was that was switched. We switched to the real girl. Um, so there's so many personal connections, the connections through that film. Like to this day, when I and I don't see it very often, but when I look at it, whenever um, they come out of the church, for example. Um, after lighting the candles, like the one, one of the women who stood at the door is Peggy McGinnis, who was Martin McGinnis's mother, long dead. Just so many personal kind of connections to it. <coughs> and by time I could tell you all. But yeah, it was about listening, 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 getting a feel for it, getting a feel for what their lives were like, you know, ordinarily. And then these private stories then of what happened to people, you know how their parents reacted, uh, what they decided to do, you know. So, is that, is that answering? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's also really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm working on a documentary about abortion, and um, a really sad thing uh, is you mentioned kind of the isolation. And yeah. even though uh, a lot of the people I'm speaking to uh, have the, had their abortions in completely legal circumstances, they constantly mention that kind of sense of loneliness and isolation. Of yeah. We have a campaign in Ireland at the minute um, called Abortion's Not a Dirty Word because there was a time when you couldn't say abortion. Yeah. yeah. So a dirty spell, D-U-R-T-Y, like, you know, trying to kind of bring a bit of humor into it as well. Yeah, I mean, it should be the case that we can talk about abortion. And it's strange how that Ireland is, is right at the forefront of change and America's put right back, you know, horrifically. <coughs> um, Margot, I mean, I love uh, this film opens with really strong female friendship and you see, unfortunately, uh, Greti just being a little bit isolated and isolated from her friends. Dinky stays with her. Margot is a filmmaker. You were connecting with women who were isolated and you were 
making sure their stories were being heard. You made this film, uh, and I think I would categorize it as activist cinema. You were listening to people, you were shining a light on them when other people wouldn't. When RTE said 5,000 pounds, that's it. No, no, you no, were no, trying. No, no, no. Uh, it was the Arts Council of Ireland gave RTE gave public but you, yeah, and, and I, I, I just want to thank you. You thanked the women earlier. We want to thank you for, you know, it's 18 years since that film was released, that repeal the eight uh, happened, and, you know, access to abortion is legal in Ireland, and that film is part of the impact. So thank you very much, and thank you for joining us. And that's it for this week's interview. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you really enjoyed it. Thank you to Culture Ireland and the Irish Emigrant Support Programme. Myself and Jerry will be back in a fortnight with a brand new interview. See you then.